0: You're listening to Matt Walsh on Demand. Welcome, welcome to Matt Walsh on Demand. It is Matt, we're calling it Matt Walsh on Demand because people have been demanding this. They've been demanding more Matt Walsh podcasts. I, I got to tell you, I, people come up to me on the street all the time. All the time, people are approaching me and saying, Matt Walsh, when are you going to uh, record some more podcasts? We really want some more podcasts. They're demanding it, uh, which that, that of course, doesn't happen at all because people would have to first know who I am in order to, to do that, and, and they don't. Although sometimes, I got to tell you, I don't mean to brag, but sometimes people do uh, recognize me when I'm out in public and, and the other day in fact I was at the uh, grocery store and I was in line and the cashier uh, said to me hello Mr. Walsh and, and I said oh yeah uh, don't don't freak out or anything but you must obviously know who I am I guess you're a big fan of the blog and she said no I don't know who you are but I just I'm reading your name on your credit card by the way it's declined Uh, Just kidding, that didn't, well, part of that didn't happen. Anyway, it is uh, Matt Walsh on demand. We've we've got a lot to cover today, and we're going to start with this. It's a very sad story, but we're going to start with what is right now, as I'm recording this on Wednesday, a breaking news item. Um, Thomas Eric Duncan, the man with Ebola, who traveled to the United States from Liberia, has died today, died Wednesday morning at uh, Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas. And as you know, he'd been critical, in critical condition, for a few weeks now, after being diagnosed with the virus in mid September. Now, I haven't discussed Ebola very much. I haven't written anything about it. I touched on it on Facebook a little bit. And obviously, I've, I've been, like everybody else, I've been talking to my family and friends about Ebola. I don't think we should be panicking over this. I don't think there's any reason for panic. If you live in Liberia, if you lived in, in any country in West Africa, it's a different story. But we don't, thank God, we don't. So that's on one hand. On the other hand, it is absolutely so irrational that we have not banned commercial flights from Ebola-infected countries in West Africa. I know I'm not the first person to say this. I won't be the last person to say it. But this is insane that we have not banned commercial flights from countries that we know are infected by a virus that while it's not yet airborne, is communicable, and if it infects you, there's a 50% chance that you'll die. A virus that has killed thousands of people in these third world nations, the idea that we don't just say, okay, you cannot get on a commercial flight from this country, from those countries and come to this, the idea that we have not said that yet is inconceivable. Well, I shouldn't call it inconceivable, because this is the Obama administration, after all. And if the Obama administration has proven anything, it's proven that... It will carefully look at any situation and diagnose it and decide what is the best thing to do and then promptly go and do the exact opposite of that thing. Oh, but don't worry, don't worry. See, they're not banning the flights from these countries that are ravaged by a deadly virus, uh, but they have decided, and this was just announced today as well, that um, airports in the U.S. will begin taking the temperatures of arriving passengers who have flight itineraries originating from West African countries. So we're not going to tell them they can't come, but when they do come, we're going to take a, a thermometer and stick it in their mouth or in their ear or, or hopefully just in those two areas and nowhere else. So that'll solve the problem, right? Except that, well, somebody could be coming here with Ebola and they're not showing symptoms yet, in which case they won't have a temperature, or they could have a temperature because they have the flu or because or for many other reasons. The problem for the government is thats that... Is that uh, you know, you can you can try to say, oh well, this is just the idea. Ebola in the United States is just is is, so, is not a concern at all. It's not anything we have to worry about. Um, don't, it's just there's no reason to even talk about it. So that's that's what you can say that you can say that. I I wouldn't agree, although I do agree that it's a low percentage chance that it becomes an outbreak in the United States. A low percentage chance that 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 becomes higher and higher as our government abdicates in its duty to take necessi- just basic steps to protect us from it. But if you're going to go with that narrative and say, not a concern, well, then you can't dispatch agents to airports across the United States and start f- sticking thermometers in people's mouths because that shows that there is a concern. And if there is a concern, then, it doesn't, then you have to explain why, well, there's a concern, but we are not going to take the first and most obvious step to address that concern, which is saying you cannot get on a commercial flight from West Africa and come here right now. Now, I've never worked for the CDC. Uh, I have, and I'll admit, I'm just a guy. I'm, just, I'm an idiot. I've never, I don't know much about deadly viruses. I've never had to deal with an outbreak. I've I've seen the movie Outbreak a few times. So if the CDC comes along and says, hey, uh, we don't think we should ban commercial flights from Ebola-infected countries, I won't immediately jump on their case. I will first say, all right, well, let me hear them out. Let's hear their re- it, sounds, it, it It doesn't sound logical, but let's hear their reasoning. And so that's what I did. And the director of the CDC, Dr. Tom Frieden, has spent the last week or two explaining why we shouldn't ban these flights. And let's look at his reasoning, because he wrote a, um, he wrote a blog on, on the website for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And this is what he said. He said, I've been asked whether we should stop travel to Liberia. The answer is no. To keep Americans and people in non-affected countries safe, we must continue to work to support efforts to stop the spread of Ebola in Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone. One strategy that won't stop this epidemic is isolating affecting countries or sealing borders. When countries are isolated, it is harder to get medical supplies and personnel deployed to stop the spread of Ebola. And even when governments restrict travel and trade, people in affected countries still find a way to move, and uh, it's even harder to track them systematically. And this is just him fleshing out what I what I what I have heard him say in a couple of different press conferences, where he, without explanation, in uh, asserted that in fact a travel ban would make us less safe somehow stopping people from with Ebola from coming to the United States would make it more likely that Ebola makes it to the United States that's that's what he said a few times and then finally he explains it and I'm still confused I'm reading this explanation it doesn't make any sense at all what he's doing here is creating an absolutely absurd false dichotomy where we have to choose between helping the Ebola-affected countries, and stopping commercial travel to and from Ebola-infected countries. What he's saying, and what Obama is saying, is that there's no way to do both. There's no possible way that we could figure out a, a method to, to help the, the countries, but also stop people from getting on a United Airlines flight and going to uh, Liberia or coming out of it. Now, again, I'm not an expert, I admit that, but w- when we send, say, uh, special military units over to uh, these countries to help assist in the efforts to battle the disease, which is, which is a separate issue, whether we should even be doing that, but let's just go, uh, let's just say um, we are doing it, and let's all pretend that we should, how do we get them there? Do, do we put them on a commercial flight? Do do we go on Travelocity.com and book a Delta flight, flying coach over there, or, or do we transport them there through some other means? If commercial travel were to be shut down to and from these countries, would that mean that we can't get aid workers and military personnel over there? There'd be no possible way to do it. I don't think so. I don't see how that's the case. And no, I don't, if, we, if there's an aid worker over there, I don't think we should prevent them from coming home. Uh, I think that if you, if you have a controlled stream, a small and controlled group of people who are going there and coming back, trying to help out, that's great. But then you can, because it's a controlled group, you can monitor them and you can isolate them. And when they want to come home, you can check them and you can keep them quarantined for a number of days, whatever the gestation period is for the virus, 19 days or whatever it is you keep and you, and you let people know if you're going to go over there and help out, this is what you're going to have to put up with. And that seems like that'd be pretty easy to do. So that's simply not a good reason to not ban travel to and from commercial travel. That is to and from these countries. What's the other reason we're given? This is always my favorite because it's the same one we're given for um, you know, shutting down the border and stopping illegal immigration, uh, the, same, the same reasoning, and what we're told is, well, it won't work. And because it won't work, we might as well not do it, which is just a, a fascinating strategy for governing a nation, isn't it? Because really, nothing ever works perfectly. There is nothing that you can do that will work perfectly all the time. And especially when it's something that you're doing that involves entire countries, when you're doing it on a, a national scale or an international scale, it will not work, work perfectly. The most you can you can hope is that it will work better than not doing it at all. And so by this logic, we should just not do anything at all ever. We should just just pack it in because nothing will absolutely work, which is, you know, why even try at that point? Our nation is now being run according to the same philosophy as your, as your 29-year-old friend who still lives in his parents' basement, even though he has a college degree and $70,000 worth of student loans, and, and he just sits there all day on the logic that, well, if I go out and try to get a job, it probably won't work, and even if I get a job, I'll probably get fired and it's going to be hard, so I might as well do nothing at all and just stay here and play video games all day. So that is how, it is that exact philosophy that is now being implemented nationwide, and our government is operating on that philosophy. Now I was watching fox News, Fox News Sunday, uh, this Pat well this past Sunday, of course, and Dr. Anthony Fauci, I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly, is the head of the uh, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He was on on the uh, on the show, and he was asked about a travel ban to and from Ebola infected areas of Africa, and he was asked if it's something we should do, and he said, no, in my opinion, absolutely not. Because when you start closing off countries like that, there's a real danger of making things worse. You isolate them. You can cause unrest in the country. It's conceivable that the governments could fall if you isolate them completely. Now, I, 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 I'm, I'm, it's, I'm almost speechless by the sheer stupidity of this. And, I, and, you know, I shouldn't even call it stupidity. Because the people in charge of this, this country, they know that this is the dumbest thing logic you could possibly try to advance, they know that. They know it isn't true. They know it. Because we could go through some basic things here. And the first thing is that our priority, our number one priority, is to protect our country. That's our first priority. I didn't say it's our only priority, but of course it is our first priority. Just like on on an individual basis, your first priority is taking care of your family, and you have to do that first before you take care of anyone else, well, it goes that way with countries too. So, you know, it's great if you want to go and donate to a soup kitchen, but if your own children are starving to death and you take the soup that should go to them and you give it to a soup kitchen, well, you have actually not done anything good. You have done something wrong in that case. You have taken what is normally a good act and and turn it into an evil act. Because you are abdicating your primary number one responsibility, which is to take care of your own kids first. Because they are your kids. They were given to you by God to be taken care of. It goes that way with countries too. If you are in charge of this country, if you are a president of this country, if you are a politician in this country, if you are involved, if you are the head of some government agency in this country, your first responsibility is to this country. So don't tell me that we can't have a travel ban in the United States because it will make things worse in Guinea. Don't tell me that. Because I don't particularly want my kids to contract Ebola just so people in Guinea feel better about it. Now, as far as causing unrest in Liberia and Sierra Leone, are we really concerned about unrest or destabilizing governments in Liberia? If if, If you want to establish a restful and stable environment... In third world, West African nations, you are a little too late for that. It's a little too late to be worried about that right now. Besides, it's all bogus. It's all bogus. None of it is true. Because you can shut down commercial travel and you can still go there and help. We don't have to isolate them or say, too bad, you're all going to die of Ebola. We don't care. It's not a one or the other proposition. It can be a one and the other proposition and everybody knows it. So then the question is, why aren't we? What's the real reason? What is the real reason why we aren't doing basic, normal things like stopping commercial travel from Ebola-infected countries? Yeah, we're going to post agents at airports, put on their little uh, nurse, nurse's hats, and uh, you know, put them in uh, lab coats or something, and we're going to give them thermometers and have them take people's temperatures. We're going to do that, but we're not going to ban travel. So what's the real reason? Because none of the reasons we're given make any sense at all. And I wish, I wish I could just say, well, the CDC is run by a moron and our country is run by a moron. And I wish it was as simple as saying that, but it's, but it's not because these people are generally, uh, well, then, I, you know, they're relatively smart, I think. They're relatively smart because they've been able to advance themselves into positions of power. And it takes, it takes a certain amount of intelligence to do that. And usually a certain amount of moral bankruptcy, which we're also saying, seeing play out right now. So the real reason, you know, I, I guess uh, I'm posing a question that I don't have the answer to because I don't know. I don't know what the real reason is. I think there's a certain amount of apathy. Um, there's a, the, the, the elites that run our nation. They don't really care. They don't actually care what happens. And they certainly don't care about our opinions. And they see us concerned about something and they just laugh at us. They just laugh about it. So I think that there's partly that. And I think that there's also there's also you know it's the same story because it would be to shut down you know to uh, to say okay you cannot get on a plane in Sierra Leone and travel to the United States to say that would be politically incorrect for lack of a better term would be politically incorrect it would be unpopular among uh, liberal circles. And it would be unpopular because it is a rational but difficult decision. It is a difficult decision that is rational, reasonable, and effective. And in liberal circles, rational, reasonable, effective things are always taboo. So that's what it comes down to. That although the risk is small, and I have said that myself, we will still take that risk. An unnecessary risk. And that's that's the problem here. Yeah, it's a small risk, but it isn't necessary. Why take an unnecessary yet small risk of an Ebola outbreak in the United States? Why do it? Because you, when the other option is to not do it. There are some risks that are unavoidable. This one is avoidable. And maybe that's what this all comes down to. Is again, it's just, for lack of a better term, and I, I don't even like this term because it's too... It, 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 has a, it, it has a connotation that at this point is too, uh, uh, too tame, too mild. And when you think of politically correct, someone who acts politically in a politically correct way, you're thinking of some, well, they're, they're, uh, they're well-intentioned, but they're just so concerned about other people's feelings that they sometimes do things that are a little silly. And that's what we think of when we think of politically correct. But political correctness is much more insidious. Political, political correctness is about control and and fear and coercion. That's what political correctness is about and that is basically why we're going to risk an Ebola outbreak in the United States. Alright, while we're on the subject of political correctness, I want to move on to uh, admittedly less important topics, but I don't have a lot of time and there's a lot of ground that I want to cover. Um, and To call this political correctness is again insufficient and while I'm using that term and I, and I use that term a lot, just because it comes up quite a bit, I think we need a better term, and probably a more appropriate term than political correctness is, well, we should refer to a, uh, you know, the progressive creed, orthodoxy, um, doctrine. It is not a matter of being polite, but it's a matter of adhering to a progressive doctrine. And doctrines do not have to be reasonable. They don't have to make sense. But they are, they're the rules. It's, It's the code, and you follow it or you are cast out as a, as a heretic. You may have seen on Tuesday, um, y- you may have seen if you're on Facebook or Twitter or if you, if you populate some of the uh, more liberal blogs, you may have seen that people were pretty upset at Men's Health Magazine. Now, I'm not a, I am don't read Men's Health Magazine. I'm not a big fan of it. I bought it one time because it promised that I could get killer abs in five days, and, uh, and it, it never happened. Now, granted, I, you were supposed to follow some sort of diet and exercise plan, and I didn't do it, but I had the magazine, which I thought would be enough. And still, my abs are not – well, they're not killer, I have to be honest with you. So I'm not a big fan of Men's Health magazine. But I still could not jump on the latest outrage bandwagon at, at Men's Health magazine. You see, what happened was that uh, the magazine on Monday night advertised on Twitter they, – they sent out a link on Twitter – Uh, for a piece that was um, in, I guess, their latest issue, or maybe it's going to be in their issue coming up. I'm not sure. Maybe it's just an online thing. Uh, I don't have a lot of information because I don't care that much. But the uh, article, whatever you want to call it, is titled How to Talk About Sports with Women. The sub-headline of the piece explains that uh, the things that interest you are unlikely to interest her, but you can still make a connection. Here's how. Already the feminists are upset. You know why? Because this, oh my goodness, we're acknowledging that there's a difference between men and women, and maybe women enjoy sports differently and for different reasons than men. And maybe, God, God forbid, uh, but, but but is it possible that there are certain recreational activities that men naturally sort of enjoy uh, more than, than women? Now I'm going to read to you an article on The Independent where they're reporting on The backlash over this terribly, terribly offensive article. And uh, here's what it it says. The U.S. magazine Men's Health has issued a full apology over an article and series of tweets that explain to readers how they should talk to women about sports. The article the tweet linked to, The Secret to Talking Sports with Any Woman, claimed that the things that interest you are unlikely to interest her, but you can still make a connection. Men's Health suggested that men should help women access the world of sports using backstories and context- which they would like. The article was accompanied by a number of pictures of men enjoying sports and women, do, women doing what was expected, looking bored or confused. The comments sparked an immediate response on Twitter with a series of outraged sports fans, sportswomen, and commentators expressing their anger. Now, if you're, if you're curious about the actual article uh, on men's health that prompted this backlash, it's very short, so I'll read the entire thing to you. Now, keep in mind, This is what's been called sexist and misogynistic and offensive to women. Offensive. So here it is. Here's the entire thing that really upset a lot of people. A lot of people. Their feelings very hurt by it. Very hurt. Here it is. It says, Not all women share your passion for sports, in case you hadn't noticed. The reason? They need storylines. Andrea Markovitz, PhD, says, Most women don't care about stats. So while you're enthusing about Dominic Moore's scoring record, she'd rather hear about how he supported his wife's battle with cancer and even took a season off from the NHL at the height of his career. Treat your heroes as people and not just players on a field, and you'll suck her right in. Just don't expect her to wear the foam finger. And that's it. I should mention one thing about this uh, very short article in Men's Health. It was written by a woman, and it quotes a woman. Now, obviously, there's nothing in here that's offensive. There's nothing that any reasonable person could be at all upset about. But there's a lot of unreasonable people in the United States, obviously. And the article doesn't claim that there aren't any women out there who don't like sports. The article doesn't claim that all women hate sports. It doesn't say that at all. It just says, generally speaking, men are more enthusiastic about sports, generally speaking, And generally speaking, they're they're, they're, they're going to be more concerned. Men are going to be more concerned about about statistics and that sort of thing. Women like storylines. Women like to know the backstory of players. They're more interested in that than men are, generally speaking. Now, generally speaking means that in many cases, or even in most cases, or in a predominance of cases, but not all cases. And it's possible, it's okay to make general statements about groups of people. You have to be able to do that or otherwise we can't communicate. We must be able to make general statements and we should be able to make a general statement without some nincompoop responding by trying to defeat our general statement by giving us some anecdotal evidence that the general statement doesn't apply in every case because we already know it doesn't apply in every case. That's why it's a general statement. I, I, Sorry, I'm just... This is... (laughs) it's the the inability of so many people in our society to understand basic concepts that really disturbs me. And I I run into this all the time, all the time. You know, you go out and you say, hey, um, I've noticed that a lot of women don't play fantasy football. And then someone says, what do you mean? My sister plays fantasy football? Yeah, I'm sure she does. I'm just pointing out that a lot of women don't. So y- your sister playing fantasy football doesn't at all negate what I just said. And by the way, there's no reason to try to negate it because I didn't say anything insulting. All I did was I-, I noticed a pattern and I observed the pattern and I, and I said it out loud. Now, the fact that men are generally more, generally more invested in sports, that's not up for debate. That's just every possible indicator shows that no matter how you measure consumption of sports or participation in sports, men are going to be more widely represented. They're going to have higher numbers. That's not... You, 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 so you can't be upset about that because it's just true. And you can't argue it because it's just true. And there's no reason to argue it because it doesn't mean that women are inferior just because they often have different interests. It just means they're different. There's no reason to be upset just because people are different. As far as women caring about stats, uh, less than men care about stats, that, that from anything I've ever, and this is anecdotal, of course, but uh, I have noticed that to be the case. My wife watches football. She's a big Ravens fan, just like I am. And she gets very invested in the games. But she, you know, if if the announcer comes on and says, you know, talks about how Joe Flacco's, kid was baptized last week, my wife is going to be more interested in that tidbit than I will be. And if the announcer comes on and says that uh, Joe Flacco had a 62.7 passer rating in his game against against the Colts last week because the Ravens abandoned the run quarter and half into the football game, even though they're only down by six and there's no reason to do it, and they lost the time of possession battle and put themselves in a position where they had to throw it constantly later in the game, which is unfortunate because they have a receiving core that can't catch the ball or establish separation or run routes correctly. Uh, If an announcer points that out, I'm going to be more interested in that tidbit. And I think that's a dynamic that holds up pretty consistently across the country. And you know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing that men are often more oriented in this direction while women are oriented in that direction. It's an interesting thing. And, and rather than get upset about it, rather than start crying and whining, we could look at the differences and, and come up with some interesting analysis of those differences. And we can learn to appreciate the, the, the differences between men and women more. And when we learn to appreciate these differences, we learn we understand each other. And when we understand each other, we, we can form closer relationships. And when we form closer relationships, we have, we have stronger marriages. And we have stronger marriages, we have, we have stronger and more stable families. And we have stronger and more stable families, we have a stronger and more stable civilization. And this is, this is the problem when liberal feminists deny that there are common differences between men and women. Because they say it often enough, and they say it with enough passion, and they're so vicious towards anyone who betrays that that bit of orthodoxy. They're so vicious towards them, that after a while, what they're saying sinks in, and people start to buy into it. And it has a very destabilizing effect on our society. People end up confused. And that's what we see all around us, and we have, in large part, progressivism, liberal feminism to, to thank for it. That relationships don't work, marriages don't work, because nobody has any idea what to do. They don't know what their role is. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Everyone is confused because we're told that we're all exactly the same and everything is 50-50. Everything is identical, But but we know that isn't true. Deep down inside, we know it isn't true. Now, Men's Health Magazine, as I said, apologized for this terribly, terribly offensive, offensive, offensive article. And they said, um, they, they tweeted out an apology. They said, Apologies for our talk sports with her story. It missed the mark, and the negative feedback is justified. We've deleted it. Uh, they, they went on to say, It wasn't meant to suggest that women are in any way inferior to men in sports or anything else, but we're sorry that it did. By saying that men are more interested in statistics than women are when it comes to sports, that somehow insinuates that women are inferior? i think here here's the point and and this is the great lie um about feminism and and this is this is what makes feminism so self contradictory a, a bunch of left wing feminists felt that they were being demeaned and degraded and that it they were being told that they're inferior to men just because men typically do something or are inclined a certain way. And women often don't do that thing and aren't inclined in that way. Now, there's nothing that makes watching sports or caring about passing statistics or whatever, there's nothing that makes that objectively uh, superior to any other recreational activity or any other interest. And it was never explained or it was never claimed and nobody can explain uh, how that is objectively superior. But what the feminists say is that if men, uh, you know, if somebody comes out and claims that men do X while women do Y, even if X by itself cannot be understood as an objectively superior thing, the fact that men do it makes it superior. That is feminist logic. So if you point out that women are different from men in some area, the women, the feminists will say that that makes women inferior. Because according to them, apparently, whatever a man does is better. That's not, I don't think that. That's what feminists think. That is feminist logic. Men do X, women do Y. It's offensive for me to say that because men are doing X, and so women should be doing X too because X is apparently... Uh, more desirable because men are doing it. It's better. It's better because men are doing it. And so while these feminists pretend to pretend to celebrate womanhood and femininity, what they actually are doing is is trying to destroy it. They aren't elevating womanhood. They are trying to obliterate the distinction between womanhood and manhood. And yes, they attempt to do that in some ways by feminizing men, so bringing men closer to the feminine side. But more often, they try to do it by, by making women more masculine and bringing women over to the masculine side. We talk about diversity. We speak of diversity so much. But, see, the problem is that in order for there to be diversity, there, there has to be difference. D- diversity is defined by difference. The very definition of diversity... I have it right in front of me. It means the state or fact of being diverse, difference, unlikeness. Second def- definition would be variety, multiformity. And so if we are all the same, then all of this talk about diversity is utter nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. There can't be a diversity uh, unless we're all different. And that's why I think you know when I, when I was a kid, uh, when I was a kid in public school, we used to. Uh, I was in chorus in school. We all had to be in some kind of musical thing, and I was in chorus because my parents didn't want to buy an instrument, and uh, so then I was just de- deferred over to chorus, even though I have no I have no vocal ability whatsoever. And we used to do these uh, these chorus recitals, which were. I mean, just, they had to be so excruciating for the parents. And I, I am, it's probably my my greatest sense of guilt that I have from my childhood is that I forced my parents to endure these, you know, fourth grade public school chorus recitals, which just had to be. So, I mean, God bless them. They're saints, all of them. All parents are saints for showing up to that kind of thing. And I know that my time will come. And And you'll probably say, well, when it's your kids, it's very cute and you kind of like it. And I can see that, but I think maybe it'd be cute for about a minute or two. But then after that, you're, you know, I'm going to go wait in the hallway. Just text me when it's over. But anyway, we would have these chorus recitals to celebrate diversity. And so we would sing these African tribal songs and these... Songs in Hebrew and that kind of thing. All of them probably written by some white English-speaking liberal from California, you know. But we'd get up there, we would sing these songs, and it was supposed to be a celebration of diversity. And looking back on it, I realized that these chorus recitals actually a perfect microcosm of the liberal attitude towards diversity in general. Our recitals were probably the liberal diversity ideal. What was it? It was... A bunch of people who looked different standing on a stage in a line wearing the same thing, saying the same thing, repeating words assigned to us by some governing authority. And that is liberal diversity to a T. That's what it is but of course in a, in the context of a chorus recital or or a choir or whatever you you have there must be uniformity you, you can't actually have diversity people need to be standing in a line they need to be on the same uh uh you know singing the same melody and and, and on the same pitch and uh Uh, singing the same song. Because if you had a a truly diverse chorus recital, it would be very confusing because everybody would be singing different songs and I'd be over there playing a kazoo because it's the only instrument I can play and everyone's, you know, some guys are on the stage and some of us are back in the back of the auditorium. It would be very confusing. So, you you know, there needs to be that uniformity. But if we're talking about diversity as a cultural ideal, then then you wouldn't necessarily have that uniformity. Or I should say, we would have uniformity... On a certain foundational level, we would all have the same basic values, the same basic principles, and those would be human values, human principles, uh, principles and values consistent with our human nature, with natural law. We would all exist in reality and be people of logic and of reason, people of moral clarity. And so that's where the uniformity would exist. But outside of that, outside of that, we would be different and we would have different ideas and different thoughts. And we would say different things. And we would have different opinions. And, and we would do different things with our lives and follow different paths. And those differences would be accepted uh, and, and nobody would be ashamed of them and we would celebrate those differences. That's the, you know, in my dream, I have a dream and, and in my dream, that is the, the, the form of diversity that we would have in this country. It, it, it's probably utopian, but at the very least, that should be the ideal for which we are all striving. The other, the other downside to insisting that we're all exactly the same is that it, 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 it strips away the possibility for real camaraderie among people. So in other words, uh, it, you know, when a man is told that he's just like a woman and that they have the exact same interests and they think the exact same things and they speak in the same way and they have the same sorts of conversations and they want to do the same things uh, recreationally, when a man is told that, and if he starts to believe it, then he's going to seek out, he's not going to particularly seek out fraternity and friendship with men, but he's going to seek it out in the same way with women. Only what he'll discover is that he cannot really have a platonic friendship uh, relationship and connection with women in the same way that he can with men. But when we tell them that, he, that he's supposed to pursue that and that he's, it's misogynistic and wrong and exclusionary for him to pursue specifically fraternity with men, uh, when we tell him that, then we strip away that, that very valuable thing that men should have and women should have too. Men should have friendships. They, they should have friendships with other men. They should have manly friendships with other men. It's good and there's nothing wrong with it. So there's nothing wrong with with a, with a magazine for men, marketing towards men, pointing out that, hey, men get together and they enjoy sports and they talk about statistics and they talk about that kind of thing and that's fine and that's different than what women do. There's nothing wrong with that. And so it's not fair and it's not right for these ridiculous feminists to say, well, what do you mean? What about us? We're just like you. We could be one of the guys. No, you can't. No, you can't be one of the guys. You cannot be. You know, that's a, that's a thing that I, I, I notice a lot nowadays. Um, and I, I can remember even before I, was, uh, before I was married, you know, you're on the dating scene a little bit. And maybe you're on a dating site or something. And this is something that women will often say about themselves because they, they think it's what, what men want to hear. and Or maybe it's just what they want to believe about themselves, which, again, shows this sort of, um, this sort of weird feminist in- inclination to worship men. Uh, b- both condemning and worshiping men at the same time is very strange. So what what women will say, and I'm sure you run into this a lot, is women say, well, you know, I'm just one of the guys. I'm just like one of the guys. I'm just like one of the boys. And, you know, my, my wife, when I met her, she wasn't my wife at the time. You know, that's how that works. But she never said that. And I was glad that she never said that. She was one of the few women to never make that claim. She, uh, like I said, she enjoys sports. She enjoys things that are typically manly things. And that's fantastic. And I love that about her. But, I I wasn't I wasn't looking for a, one of the guys. I was looking for a woman. I was looking for a wife. And my wife is she is my best friend. She's my love. She's my you know, purpose in life. And I have a a deeper and closer relationship with her than I have with any other human being on the planet. But at the same time, she's not one of the guys and I also have guy friends and my relationship with them is different than the relationship I have with my wife. And my wife understands that and she under, and she because she is she hasn't bought into thank god this feminist propaganda she understands that that fraternity with other men is very important she doesn't try to intrude on it and she doesn't get offended about it and if i were to say to her look you know i like uh, talking to my to my guy friends and hang out with my guy friends because we can you know we have conversations and we can get along in a certain way that i can't get along with other people and she she isn't offended by that she says absolutely it's important for you to have that in your life so while it is so crucial for us all as people to recognize our differences and accept those differences and celebrate those differences, at the same time, we, we will also seek out people who are like us because there's a certain bond there that we cannot establish with people who are not like us. And that is, another, that is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not driven by hate for anyone. It's just driven by a natural affinity and connection and, and um, understanding that we have people that are like us. So that, that's true with genders. And it's also true um, with cultures and ethnicities and races. So sometimes you'll hear, uh, you will hear white people, they, they get upset about, you know, why should there be historically black colleges? Why should there be black clubs on campus? And uh, I've never really, I've never related to that complaint. I've never felt offended by it or attacked or excluded. Black people share a cultural heritage, and so they, they seek out that connection with each other. And I, I think that that is a good thing that, once again, should be encouraged. We should encourage people to do it. That doesn't mean we isolate ourselves from the people who are different, but it does mean that we can grow to understand ourselves and to learn more about ourselves when we ground ourselves in friendships with people who are like us and whether we're speaking about gender, culture, ethnicity, religion, whatever the case may be, it's all okay, and it's all good, as long as it doesn't come at the expense of, uh, you know, as long as that, as that friendship and familiarity that we find with people like us, as long as it isn't all centered around hatred of people who are not like us. I think when a, when a Jewish kid goes to a Jewish community center I don't think he's sitting around talking about how much he hates gentiles. Maybe, but I I don't think he is. He's probably doing and saying a lot of the same things he would do and say around uh, around gentiles, but but he it's important for him to establish that bond with people who are like him. And that is good. Man, we're just so we're just so thin-skinned and so whiny in this country that we we can't stand being excluded from anything, even if it's we're being excluded from a group that we physiologically inherently uh, cannot be a part of anyway. All right, one more thing I wanted to touch on before we wrap things up for the day. Um, you know, we're approaching the midterm elections, and as we approach the uh, the election season, well, I guess we're in the election season. Uh, you're going to start seeing more of these PSAs and commercials trying to encourage people to go out and vote. I'm not a big fan of get-out-the-vote campaigns, uh, and I'm not a big fan of them because, well, for a few reasons. Number one, I'm not convinced that the salvation of our nation rests in simply getting more warm bodies into the ballot box. We are obsessed with this notion that we only think as many people there as possible. We just have to flood the just a big voter turnout. But it's not the turnout that matters, it's the substance. It's not the quantity of the people participating in the democratic process, but the quality of them. So if somebody is oblivious and ignorant, we should not encourage them to go vote. We should, in fact, encourage them to stay home. So if anything, there should be commercials saying, Hey, can you name the Secretary of State? Can you point to Syria on a map? You don't have to get it exactly, but can you give us the basic region of the world where it exists? Can you name three three U.S. presidents? Do you know what GDP stands for? You don't? Okay, well then stay home. We don't need you. I, I mean, you know, spend the next two to four years researching these topics and actually becoming aware of your surroundings, and uh, and then we'd love to have you next time around. But But this time, considering you don't have a basic fundamental grasp of uh, the way our government works and what's going on in the world and in the nation, why would we encourage you to come vote? What's the, but you know, we all we all go vote. We put on our, I voted stickers as if that in and of itself is a virtuous act. But it's not just a virtuous act. All you did was you just go in, you went in and you went behind a curtain and you pushed some buttons. So I'm not a fan of get out the vote commercials because they they almost always target ignorant people. I think I think by definition, they target ignorant people because if you're not ignorant, And if you are involved and engaged and aware, then you don't need a get out the vote commercial to remind you to go vote or to tell you about the important issues of the day or to tell you when the polls open. You don't really need that because you're already, you're, you're ready. You're good to go. Right. But then it's worse when a get out the vote commercial explicitly targets ignorant people. And that's what they often do. And that's why I think these, these campaigns are, are usually insidious. Because the powers that be, see, they know that uh, it's better for them if ignorant, uninformed people vote. That's better for them. The worst case scenario for them, just their their apocalyptic worst case scenario would be a year when 80% of the people voting are informed and engaged and know what's going on. Oh, man, they're terrified of that potential. They can't allow it to happen. So they could go the you know Middle East dictator route and uh, send goons to your house with guns and stop you from voting, but we're not quite at that point in this country. So instead, they they do something which I think is even more effective: is that they, can, they know they can't stop you, the informed person, from voting. So what they do is they go and they br- and they just they bring in busloads and busloads and truckloads of ignorance, and so they bury your informed vote. Under a whole mound of ignorance thereby effectively negating its impact that's the idea and that's particularly the idea behind this uh, latest rock the vote campaign and it's it's um, it's a pro voting ad that's out there on the internet now and it stars true scholars and statesmen like lil John Lena Dunham uh, Ireland Baldwin I don't even know who she is and then some other people, Daring Chris, don't know who that is. Lil John and Lena Dunham, unfortunately, I am aware of them. So this is, I want to play for you. This, this is kind of, this is a very low budget operation that I'm doing here with Matt Walsh on demand. So I can't actually, so what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to play uh, the YouTube video from my iPad into the microphone because, you know, I, I like to keep it real here. So let's play a little bit of this for you. Let's uh, skip ahead a little bit. Hold on a second. You're saying Turn out for what? You, you get it? I'm Darren and I'm turning out for education. I'm EJ and I'm turning out for marriage equality. My name is Lil Lena and I'm turning out for reproductive rights. Oh, I'm sure that's. You see, this is a this is an ad. That it's supposed—they're not advocating any particular issue or any particular political party. They just want anyone to vote, which is why the fir- two of the first three examples of issues why people vote—they uh, have gay rights and reproductive rights. Just a total coincidence that it just happened to come together that way. Okay, now, it's, now remember this is to encourage people to vote, so this is. Yeah, it shows there are people dancing. I'm Sophia, and I'm turning out for women's rights. I'm oh, a- women's rights. And I'm turning out for the depot station. What's up? It's Lil John. And I'm turning out for the legalization of marijuana. Yeah, okay. But, well, you know, remember, Rock the Vote, if you ask them, they're not, they don't lean politically one direction or another. It's just they came out with an ad specifically advocating for people to turn out to protect gay rights uh, reproductive rights, women's rights, um, and to end deforestation and to legalize marijuana. It's just, it just, that's just, you know, they could, they could have, they could have just as easily had something in there about, say, religious rights or gun rights. But they just, it just so happens that it wasn't. It's, it's a coincidence, don't you see? It's all incidental. Ireland, and I'm turning out for global warming awareness. Ah, uh, global warming awareness. Turning out for racial equality. Racial equality. Yeah. Um, oh, we're doomed. See, here's the problem. I don't know how many people will actually watch Little John twerking and then say, you know what? This man has a good point. I'm going to go vote. You know, that, that Mr. John, he uh, he really he raises an important point where he says, turn out for what? I, I, I hadn't thought of it that way. But in, in fact, I, I believe I will go vote. So I don't know how many people will have that reaction, but uh, every single person that does, that—that that is poison to our democracy. Those are Democratic terrorists showing up at the polls to destroy the democratic process. Anyone who is actually encouraged to vote because of that advertisement is precisely the sort of person we don't want voting. Hi, I'm Fred. I'm turning out because I want to impress my friends. That's the only reason to ever do anything. Turn out for what? <laughs> Turn out for what? For what? For what? Yeah. That's music, folks. That's music. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord help us. I've always been a proponent. I, I You know, we, we we have this idea that uh, voting is some kind of human Right everybody, no matter what, should be able to vote. And that that's kind of an unprecedented idea. It certainly is not how our country was established. Now, of course, back, back in the old days, you couldn't vote unless you were a property owner. And now that was back when black people were, in fact, property, so they were not allowed to vote. Women weren't allowed to vote. And eventually our society looked at that and said, well, this is wrong. Nobody should be excluded from voting because of the color of their skin or because of their genetic makeup. And we realized that that was wrong. And of course it was wrong. And we realized it. We went in, we fixed it. Should have fixed it a lot sooner, but we did fix it. We made it law. We said, you cannot be excluded from voting just because of the color of your skin or just because you're a woman. And that was the right thing to do. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have other parameters in place, whether you're black, white, man, woman, something in between. Yes, that fact alone. Obviously, shouldn't exclude you from voting. But what if you can't string together two coherent sentences? What if you're 28 and you've never had a job or paid taxes in your life? What if you don't know the difference between the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence? Regardless of your race, uh, your creed, your gender, uh, should you still I, I, do you still have a human right to go vote and participate? in the democratic process and help guide our national ship when you have no idea about anything. You don't know what you're doing. And I would say no. Up until very recently, I think everyone would have agreed. And and, and again, back in the day, people had some bad ideas about voting. But they also had some good ideas. And they did realize that, well, you really shouldn't, that we we are not benefited by having people voting if they, number one, are not in any way contributing to the prosperity of the nation, and number two, if they don't have any idea about anything that's going on in the nation. It's sort of suicide, in fact. It's national suicide to have people like that voting. But I know, there's never going to be any laws passed saying that you know you have to be literate or you have to be able to... Pass a five question Basic current events quiz To vote If, there, if that law Were on the books I, I would be a big Proponent of it But but it, it will never happen So at least At the very least uh, What we as individuals And citizens can do We can stop Seeing things like that Things like this And, and, and we could stop Seeing that And saying, no, "Oh, Well that's nice They're encouraging People to vote Let me put it On my Facebook And if we stop Doing that We'll finally be taking one step towards progress and one step to a better future. Thank you. Amen. All right, that's going to uh, pretty much do it for me. Thanks for listening. If, if we're not friends on Facebook, please get on that, facebook.com slash blog at blog on Twitter, and I will talk to you next week. A cruce salus. This has been Matt Walsh On Demand. Talk to you later.